Um, would you please stand? Uh, actually, would you dismiss the children, ages three to seven, to Children's Church, ages three to seven? It's a good crew. All right. Very good. You can still stand for the reading of the word. Sorry. We can do both of those simultaneously. Children can be dismissed. Um, we're in parables. And uh, this is Jesus, Luke chapter 19. This is the word of the Lord. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and the lights came. <laughs> you read the word and just boom. Good work, whoever. Uh, we're not big pyrotechnics here. There's no fog machines or lights, but that's a pretty, uh, pretty good deal. Uh, um, somewhere, I'm, oh, 13. Uh, ten minas. Uh, and said to them, engage in business till I come. But his citizens hated him, and he sent a get delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your minna has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little Little you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew what I, that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not owe. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And in my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And he said to them, Lord, Lord he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Some say mina, some say minas. I did some work this week, how to say that word, because I had to read it 15 times. So uh, tomato, tomato, uh, pronounce it how you will. Um, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. Um, Last week, we, we read about uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee, and we were all in agreement that we didn't like the Pharisee, and we were thrilled with the radical mercy of God towards the tax collector. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And he says, this man went home justified, not the religious man. And we were all like, yes. Right? Um, and yet today, some of us that loved the, uh, the radical mercy and generosity of Jesus are not going to be too thrilled uh, with the commitment to justice and wrath and anger of God. Well, that's not popular today. But both are true. And as followers of Jesus, our, our commitment when we come to the text and we read hard things is we don't first say, well, God can't be right. 
Well, the Bible can't be right, though we ask good questions and we wrestle with the text. We take our prayers to God. We begin by saying, something about me is off that I can't reconcile these things to to disposition of faith as we come to the text and say, okay, I'm going to start by assuming that God is good and faithful. And so when I read hard things like slaughter them before me, I've got something in me that has a problem, um, not God's problem. It's our disposition. We ask questions, we wrestle, but we sh- we we uh, we're shaped um, by Him. Um, the reality of it is, we've been shaped by the kingdom of this world a tremendous amount. And what we said about the parables is that Jesus is showing there's a new King. And he's establishing a new kingdom, and this kingdom is upside down. It's flipped over all the values of this world. And so in this flipping over and changing, it's like changing a new culture. Uh, There's a lot of cognitive dissonance. We don't really know what's going on, and we're trying to sift through. It's kind of like being a Christian in the South. You don't know what's Southern and what's Christian, right? And you're trying to discern, like, what's about Jesus and what's just because my grandma did it, right? You're in that place. But Jesus is radically changing and shifting us through these parables. So we're going to take this one up and see what we find. Let's look at the parable and see what we learn about the kingdom of God together. First thing we learn is that there is a resistance to the king. There's resistance. Um, We've said this a lot. Jesus likes to take everyday examples, analogies to make connections for his audience. Like a good teacher or a coach or a, you know, um, a parent sits down with their kids and they can't get the point across. They start, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you an example. They try to use that to build a bridge so that the student or the child can understand, make the connection. Jesus does that with us and with the disciples and with the people. And here, Jesus is going to use an example from history, a brief history lesson, not long, but you've probably heard of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Judean king, the king of Judea, when Jesus was born. And you remember, he was afraid. He'd heard about Jesus being born, this person king of the Jews, and so he said, we're going to slaughter every, every male, right, every child, two and under. And so Jesus and his family had to flee to Egypt so he can hide away. Well, Herod dies uh, in early days of the, the, the turn, uh, in the A.D., early days of Jesus' life. Herod dies, and his two sons, among others, Antipas and Archelaus, they go to Rome to try to inherit uh, the kingship that their dad had, okay? So Rome is in charge, Roman Empire, and they divide up their kingdom, and they have kings in various areas. Herod was a king over this part of the world of Israel uh, where Jesus was from. Herod dies. His sons want to take his place, but no one does anything. No one becomes king without the permission of Rome, right? So they travel, uh, uh, Archelaus, Antipas, travel, to Rome. And the historian Josephus says this, uh, this parable mimics very much the scenario that happened with Archelaus. There's a very much a historical tie, and Jesus is using this to help the people understand by a practical example. When Archelaus goes to Rome to try to become king, a bunch of Jewish delegates go too, like the text says. In Jesus' parable, and they said, we don't want this guy to reign over us. History says about 50 Jewish delegates went, about 8,000 Jews in Rome went to Caesar and said, don't let him be king. And yet, Caesar 
grants Archelaus, the regional king, over this area uh, where Jesus is living and teaching. And it says when Archelaus comes back to Jerusalem, Josephus said he was brutal because these people had tried to stop him from ruling and reigning. And so he came back with force and he executed wrath upon them. Josephus said, Archelaus' palace was in Jericho. That's the city that Jesus just left. In Luke chapter 19, verse 1, Jesus has just left Jericho. And then Jesus tells a parable that sounds very similar to the historical reality that the Jewish people would know very well of Archelaus. So it's interesting. It might be odd to us that Jesus would choose someone like this historical figure that was hated to make a parallel, but we know Jesus has done that. He does that frequently, right? He did that a few weeks ago with the unjust judge, right? The widow asks and asks and asks. The judge is terrible, and he finally gives in, and Jesus is using the unjust person to make a point about who he is, right? Jesus uses all kind of figures and historical points and people to make his point. All right, history's over. What's going on? What's going on? Verse 11 It says, Jesus was approaching Jerusalem. Jesus was approaching Jerusalem. And when he comes to Jerusalem, you remember Palm Sunday? What do they do? They throw the branches down and they say, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And there's this huge excitement. And as they're going and getting ready, many of the Jews are excited. He is going to be king. And Jesus is speaking about his kingdom. He's been using that language. So they're anticipating this great kingdom and king. And Jesus is trying to say here, uh, remember that group that went up to Rome and said, Archelaus will not be our king and protested to Caesar? Uh, when we get to Jerusalem here, <laughs> it's going to quickly turn from Hosanna, Hosanna to crucify him, crucify him. They will not accept me. They will reject me. They will protest my rule and reign. It's a critique. It's a rebuke. It's a warning that the Jewish people will not accept Jesus, he was the king, but he would not be received as king. The Jews wanted a political king, a military king. They wanted to come in there, and they wanted him to wipe out the Romans. And they wanted to reestablish Israel and its power and prominence. That's not the kind of king that Jesus would be. Like Archelaus, Jesus would be resisted and rejected. He was not their king He was not the king of power. Jesus would say things like, you know, unless a kernel of wheat dies, it only remains a single seed. But if it it dies, it bears much fruit. That's not the kind of king we wanted. Jesus would say things like, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is not the kind of king the Jews wanted. They wanted power. They wanted to roam out. They wanted authority. They wanted to take over. Jesus comes in humility and service. He comes in care for the least and the lost. He is the Messiah, but not like their glory of David or Solomon, but like Isaiah 53 where the suffering servant gives himself and lays down his life. What does this mean for us? Um, What kind of king do you expect from Jesus? You know, we all have expectations of what Jesus is like, what his kingdom is like. Um, 
if, uh, if you've been a Christian uh, very long, I hope you can see that what you thought it was going to be like being a Christian and what it's actually like are totally radical different things. Have you found that out? Somebody nod just, just to make sure. If you haven't found that out, we might not be dealing with the real Jesus, right? Um, some of us want the, uh, the, you know, the, the Santa Claus Jesus. Uh, we want the, the Hail Mary. Life's difficult. We just throw up something last minute. I remember you used to do devotionals for a, a baseball team. <laughs> and uh, most of the guys had zero interest in anything I said. But I was kind of like the lucky rabbit's foot. They wanted to come, you know, touch so like maybe they'd get a few hits that day, you know. Maybe they have a good day. It wasn't really about Jesus, you know. It was maybe, I don't know if this works. It's superstition, you know. I never change. I wear the same socks. I go to devotionals. Maybe I'll play well. Um, if you've engaged with Jesus, you've had to wrestle with your expectations uh, aren't what you thought. He's far more radical than you thought. He, he, he's, he's far more gracious and loving. We, we saw it last week. He goes after the worst and the least, and he changes them. We would never do that. And he's far more committed to truth and justice than we would ever do. We, we compromise. When things get hard, we waver. I had a guy... Uh, Another church, <laughs> his view of Jesus uh, was this macho Jesus. He, I preached on John 15. It's where Jesus says, you know, you're no longer a servant, but you're a friend. You know, uh, greater love is no man than this. And he came up afterwards and he said, uh, I'm fine with you preaching about the friendship of God, but next week you better preach about the warrior king, Jesus. You know, <laughs> it was like, we were like, ah, you know, beating our chest. Or <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, Jesus is a warrior king. But, you know, we're in, Jer- we're in Joshua, right, Frazier? He's... This is a, he's, a, he's a warrior. He protects his people, right? Um, but we want him to be something, some kind of image we've conjured up. This is what he's like. And he's so much different and more radical. What's your expectation of Jesus? Do you realize he wants to undo you? He wants to change you? He didn't, he's not just working on the surface. He wants to penetrate your heart and the places, the depth. Are you, in, are you in Rome protesting? He's not my king. I'll let you be king if I get these things in my life. If I get married, I'm tired of being single and alone. If I have this job. <laughs> or like, hey, you're king. You're king. You do what you do. What are your expectations? He will expose our faulty ones. Second thing. Um, we see in this parable, we see, uh, we, we see not only um, the expectations, we see the resistance to his kingship, but we see the risky nature of faith. The text tells us that there's 10 servants. They're each given one of these, one of these coins. It's about three months' wages. Uh, but the story only re- reports three of the interactions. He comes back. The, the nobleman goes away. He secures the kingdom. He comes back, and he brings three of them. And there only is three because three covers the two groups. There's really two groups. There's the faithful ones and the unfaithful. The first two come and say, yeah, I, uh, I was given one minna and I came back and there's 10. Now there's 11 total. And I don't know, John, I don't know, if, you know, financial planning, but that's a thousand percent. Pretty good return, right? It's a good investment. The other one turns in one and he comes back with, with five more. There's six, 500%. 
The stock market is hot. Let's get invested in that. But then he comes to the third guy, and he says, what'd you do? And he says, Lord, here's your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. What's the, what's the failure of this man? It's going to be a harsh treatment. What's the failure? He didn't lose the money. He did what a lot of people did in that day. He, he, he hid it, or you know, they would bury it in their backyard, keep it safe. It's the, you know, the, the ancient uh, savings account. You know, he kept it. Um, what did he do? He had one. He returned one. He didn't invest it, right? He didn't invest it. What was the command of the king when he left? Calling 10 of them, he said, engage in business until I come. Follow command. Take it. Use it. Work with it. Use what you have. Make money. Invest. Don't sit on it. Take a chance. I wonder if he would have invested it and he would have lost it. I wonder if the market would have gone south, you know. 2007, 8, you know, all that money. Wonder, wonder what the king would have done. He, he may have been harsh. He says he was a harsh man. So may he have had the same response, but he might not have because he was called to invest it, to try. The servant said he was severe. And so the king says, well, he says, the text says he used his words against him. He said, you knew I was severe, then why did you not put it in the bank and let my, the money work? The bank, in this sense, is uh, think stock market, not you know your checking account. Put it to work, invest it, give it a shot. You knew I was severe, so if you lost, maybe I'd be upset. But certainly, I'd be upset if you did nothing with it, if you squandered it, if you wasted it. To risk and to lose is one thing. But to do nothing entirely is, uh, is totally unacceptable acceptable here. The imager here of, is the nobleman who's gone away and comes back. And when he comes back, he's going to say, what are the servants doing? It's a picture of, the first, of, of Jesus' first coming. He comes, he lives a life, he dies, he's resurrected, he's ascended. And while he's away, there's a gap. There's some time would pass. We're living in it until he comes again. And the implication is, how will he find us? How will he find us using the gifts and the resources and the talents and the abilities that we have for him? Are you sitting on it? Are you squandering it? Um, if Archelaus, the mean... The mean king expected them to do something. How much more the good king would expect his people to be faithful with their gift? Ryan and I, when we started this church, we said, uh, you know, there's no guarantee that Christ Redeemer lasts as a church. Like we, we, can't, we can't pull our Bibles and say, here's a promise that says our church is going to be great and wonderful. And it, we, we can say that the scripture says the kingdom of God, uh, the, the hell will not prevail, right? It, the the kingdom of God will last and it will go and it will be promoted and forever and ever till Christ returns. But there's no guarantee of this particular church. It could close tomorrow, right? There's no promise to that. So what do you do? 
What do we got? We got uh, guys that want to plant a church. We got people in the community that don't know Jesus. We've got a core group of people. We've got a church that want to send us. And so it's like, let's roll the dice. Let's go for it. Here we are. Let's see what happens. Maybe it works. Maybe God blesses it. Maybe it goes. Maybe it doesn't. But how much worse to sit on it, to do nothing, to not be active, to be still. Take the gift and go for it. Try it, you know. Give it a chance. See what happens with what you have. Um, That's an example for us as a church, but it's true for you. God's given you gifts. God's given you talents. Do you want him to return and you not to use what you have? And some of you need to stop. Some of you feel like, I'm not, I don't have anything to offer. I'm like, I'm not good at anything. You have all these messages, but you do. As a part of the body of Christ, you've been given spiritual gifts. You have natural talents. Are you using them? How might you use them? The parable is urging us. He's coming back. How will he find you? It doesn't say we have to be exceptional. It doesn't say when we come back, you know, here's 10 and that's a, big, that's a big investment return. I don't think that's the demand. We have to do these great and glorious things. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Be found faithful. Be found using the gifts that you have been given in between the time. It's supposed in the parable that there was a time between. That time is while he is away. When Christ returns, are we going to be found Uh, using our gifts as his agents in the world. It's by faith. That's true of everything, though, isn't it? I mean, to have relationships is by faith. Your vocation is by faith. Your family is by faith. Use what you have or squander and sit on it. What does that look like for you? What does it look like to risk? Where do you need to risk? Where do you need to trust? Where do you need to step out? Where do you ask Jesus for the grace to to do something, to be found faithful to him? Um, Finally, um, we resist the king and uh, we're afraid so we don't take risks, but we're called to in the kingdom. Give it a shot. Finally, there's judgment. Judgment. While the king's away, there's ample opportunity for service, but there's also opportunity for rebellion. And the picture here, we're kind of like, man, this is harsh. This guy just sat on it, but his sitting on the, the one minna is a picture of rebellion. It's a picture of resistance to what he says to do. He told you to engage and do something, and you refused in your heart. It's an opportunity for rebellion and disobedience. There's reward for the faithful. Those that serve, those that put their money to work, they were, uh, there was an investment, a return, and they were blessed. They were given cities to rule over. It's a picture of our, our calling in the world to be uh, his, his co-laborers, his agents in the world, to be a part of the kingdom spreading. And as we're faithful with little, right, we're given more and more and faithful with more and more and more. But... The flip side is that uh, there's also punishment or judgment. The nobleman said when he came back from Rome, when he was given the kingship, he came back and he says, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. 
And just as Archelaus came back and those that rejected him and fought against him, he condemned them, he judged them, this strong language of slaughtered them. You don't want me to reign over you. Here's the consequences to you. Jesus as well will come with condemnation. He will come with judgment upon the earth. There, there could be nothing more offensive culturally than to say God will come and judge, right? I mean, we could say almost anything, um, and it would be more palatable to our cultural moment. But uh, the rejection of the king is to say we, we, we want life on our own. One picture of hell is described as there's torment, there's gnashing of teeth, there's all these images of judgment. But one picture of it is getting what you wanted. We've lived a life and we said, I don't want you, God, I don't want you, God, I don't want you, God, I don't want you, God. And then finally the picture, Romans tells us and others, okay. And God removes his hand. The one minna, the one gift, the one blessing he had was taken away and given to the others, right? And he was left with zero Zero goodness, zero grace. It's a picture of you wanted it and you got it. And judgment is that reality in the scripture. It's very clear in the scripture. It's hard for us to see that because our picture of Jesus on his first coming is humility, is service. He's the one condemned. He's the one that takes up the criminal. He's the one that's cursed. But when he comes a second time, it will be to consummate the kingdom, to bring the people of the kingdom together, those who have been faithful and those who have not. This language of slaughter is meant to shock us. Like we should read it and say, wow, warning, heads up, this is serious. How I live my life matters. We, we, we established last week very clearly, it's not by works, can't earn it, it's unmerited, it's free, but how we live, how we work, how we serve matters. It matters how we live our lives. There's, both, there's consequences for how we do that. Um, the problem I said at the beginning is we can't hold those together. We can't hold the radical love and generosity of God with God of wrath and anger and justice. We have trouble with that. Um, but some of you in here have known injustices, Right? The people that don't like the wrath of God, uh, be careful I say this. Um, if you've known injustice at all, and some of you know it a lot more than others, um, you should be okay with, with the wrath of God. <laughs> if you've known abuse and misuse and mistreatment, you should be okay with the wrath of God. The wrath of God is that thing that says all wrongs will be made right. It's one of the motivations that we don't retaliate as Christians. When someone hurts us, we don't retaliate back because we say judgment and justice belongs to the Lord. I don't have to go back. There's not, you know, retaliation killings because we as Christians say call to forgive and God will deal with that, right? God will deal with that. Maybe not in this life. But in the end, God will deal with it. For all of those who have not trusted in him, who have not bent the knee to him, who do not welcome his kingship, there will be the consequence of judgment. 
and wrath upon them. That's a big topic. There's a lot here to talk about. Talk about it more as we move forward. Uh, the judgment of God. But we need to know the seriousness of it. We need to know this is a warning passage. It's meant for us to reflect, to take serious the charge of our lives if we reject his goodness. The new king has come. He's established his kingdom. He will come again to consummate it in full. Are we faithful with where we are with what we've been given? Some little, some a lot. Are we going to use it for his purposes and his goodness? Scripture says, to those two paths, there will be reward and there will be judgment. And we have the opportunity to follow him and trust him. It's challenging to hear. It's the very clear message of the New Testament, the Bible, um, that there are two ways to live, under the authority of Jesus or to reject the authority of Jesus. When he comes back, may we be found faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all of your word, even the hard parts. Pray that we would be found faithful uh, when you return because you, uh, you are the king and you're a good king and you're a gracious king and you are a wonderful king and yet you are a king that we are to bend the knee to, bow to. May we be found doing that when you return. May we use the gifts and the ability that you've given us to bring glory and honor to your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand as we recite, oh, we're not doing the Apostles' Creed today, the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. You can still stand. We use various uh, historical uh, confessions and catechisms to ground us that we are not uh, a new church and a couple years old, but we are a church that's throughout the ages connected and tied to Jesus, let me ask the question, and we can repeat this answer together. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from the tyranny of the evil. He also watches over me in such a way not a hair on my head can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life, makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Let me be seated. Um, Jesus comes again in wrath and judgment and uh, glory. It's hard for us because that, that verse speaks about slaughter. Um, and the only slaughter we know is the slaughter that Jesus took upon himself. Um, that's the picture we have. Jesus comes in humility and service and uh, paints a picture of what it means to be a part of this kingdom that is generous and gracious, so generous and gracious that he gives himself. Um, that he is willing to be torn in two, that we would be made whole. That he is broken, his blood shed, that we might have life in him eternal. So we think about God's judgment, we can think about the severity of it. It can seem harsh until we realize that the first place that judgment was placed was not upon us, but upon Jesus. Jesus drank the wrath of God, the judgment of God in our place. 
still may have issues. You still may have to work through judgment and read passages and deal with that. But know that God has been willing to take his own wrath and pour it upon his own son for our salvation. That is the good news of the gospel for all who believe. This is the bread Jesus took, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Likewise, he took the cup. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. New relationship has been poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. His wrath-absorbing, crushed spirit. Father turned his faith away. Descend into hell, death. We proclaim that until he comes again for his people. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this meal, simple elements, bread and wine that we partake of on a daily basis. And yet, as we come together, we take it in a way that says it, it tells a story. It tells a story of, of your work and your life and your obedience and your faithfulness, that you were the faithful servant when you were given a task and you were given uh, a calling and you, were, you had your resources and you, had your, you used them faithfully from beginning until end and you were willing to take the penalty for sin, the penalty for all of our failure upon yourself. God, as we take these elements, would we know something of that gospel story in our own lives? Would we wrestle with what type of king are you? Far different than we thought, far better.